0: Well, this past week, I came downstairs at our house and my daughter was on the computer. She was doing some homework and I came up behind her uh, because I noticed that she had a Google search page open on the computer and in the search bar, it was filled, like she had filled it with more than just a few keywords, she had filled it with paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of text. And I said, "Uh, what are you doing? And she informed me that she was working on a sample test for her social studies uh, unit at school. And she didn't know all of the answers to these questions. And so she had typed the whole test into Google in the search bar. And Google was going to give her the answers that she needed for this test. This was just going to be one button and she was done with it. But uh, as I explained to her, you know, that sometimes getting answers to your questions is a little more complicated than typing a few key words into a search engine. Sometimes when you need answers to something, when you need advice, when you need wise counsel, uh, especially questions that are a little more nuanced or challenging or a little bit messier, uh, Google's not really going to help you with some of that stuff. So you have to figure out where are you going to turn ...for some of those questions. Here at Jericho Ridge, we're teaching through a book in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians... ...in a series called Messy Church, as we study uh, the Bible and the New Testament. And this uh, is a part of the Bible, is written as a letter to the church in Corinth under the inspiration of God, uh, the Holy Spirit, by a man named Paul, who was an apostle. He was a leader in the first century movement uh, for Christians. And so, in, as people were coming into Christian community in the early first century, they had a lot of questions, good questions, messy questions, complicated questions. And because it was pre-Google, they couldn't just type it into a search engine they had to figure out where are we going to get answers to these questions that we have and that's normal because the world is a complicated place it's a little more complicated sometimes our questions and the things that we face in life than just typing it into google and expecting that that'll spit out an answer for us and you got to wrestle with questions of life And the early church was wrestling just like we do with questions, where do we get wisdom to follow God, to live in a culture that has a very different view on some issues than the Bible teaches on things. So how do you live with wisdom in a culture where different views of sexuality and morality and singleness and marriage and what it means to be a good husband or a good wife or a good mother? So because Google wasn't invented yet, the people in Corinth did the next best thing. They wrote a letter. Seems very archaic. But they wrote a letter to Paul. And they said, Paul, we have a ton of questions about things. What should we do? And so Paul wrote a letter back to them. In fact, a couple of letters back to them. And that led, those letters became the books of First and Second Corinthians. He wrote back with advice and teaching, not only for their benefit, but also for ours. And so Paul begins to answer, in the section we're moving into today in our series, Paul begins to answer uh, some of those questions that they asked him. And lest you get confused uh, about this being Mother's Day and the topics that we're going to address today, they didn't ask Paul at all about Mother's Day because it wasn't invented either back then. So he had no advice for them about Mother's Day. Uh, So in case you're confused, uh, there will be talking points today for mothers, but primarily the questions that they had for Paul were much more complicated than that and messy. They were questions really about issues of morality and particularly around sexual immorality. So Happy Mother's Day, this is probably the first message you've heard, Mother's Day and sexual immorality in the same message series. So I was talking to a friend about that, what I was preaching on, and they said, isn't that really more of a Father's Day topic? And I said, why would you say that? And they said, well, you know, in May, like the church is all about, yay, moms, lifting up women and all of that stuff. And then it gets to like the second Sunday in June and the church is like, dad, you're horrible. You know, you need to like pathetic and you need to stop looking at pornography. And so they thought maybe a message on sexual immorality for mothers might help balance the equation somewhat uh, for them. But anyways, this morning, uh, we're going to look at The things that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7. And Paul has some very clear words about things that we ought to embrace and things that we ought to leave behind. And so we're going to begin looking in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 verses 1 to 7. So he starts off in verse 1 by saying, Now, regarding the questions that you asked me in your letter, yes, it's good to live a celibate life or to abstain from sexual immorality or it's good not to touch, it's good for a man not to touch a woman is another way that that would be translated. But Paul says, because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. And afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. But Paul says, I wish that everyone were single, just as I am. But God gives to some the gift of marriage, and to others the gift of singleness. So Paul now is into this uh, letter writing, and he's responding to the very first question that they asked him. And the very first question that they asked him was about marriage, and about singleness, and about sexuality, and it's a little bit of a funny answer when you think about it. So if they ask Paul the question, should we stay single? Should a person stay single? Or should a person get married? Paul replies to them and says, little bit, walks a little bit of a tightrope and says, yep, it's a good thing to be married, but it's also a good thing. It's in fact an incredible gift to be single. Essentially, if you read 1 Corinthians 7, and keep going down for the rest of the chapter, Paul, they say to Paul, well, should we get married? And Paul kind of says, well, if you want to get married, it's not a sin. So I guess so if you really want to. But in this section on marriage and discussion on marriage and sexual ethics, Paul begins by saying something very clearly that's often not very clearly talked about in the church. And that is that Paul elevates and gives credence to singleness. Let's talk about this for a minute, frankly. In this season of life here at Jericho Ridge, it can be very hard to be a single adult here. There are families everywhere, there's like a baby in the info sheet every other weekend. And there can be a subtle or not so subtle signal then that goes out just based on that as to who's welcomed here and who is not welcomed here. And the suburban North American church, and Jericho Ridge is a part of that, has been guilty at times of orbiting unnecessarily around marriage and family in ways that maybe can be healthy but can also move into places where it's lifted up almost to the place of idolatry. One of our most listened to messages online in all time of Jericho Ridge is a message called The Family as an Idol. And if you didn't listen to that, that was from a few years ago, certainly feel free to go back and pick that up at some point. Because inadvertently what can happen is by emphasizing one thing you can de-emphasize something else. And now, in some ways, this is just a product of our demographics here in Willoughby and in Clayton. If you look around, there are a lot of people with kids, a lot of young families here in Willoughby. But it can also be something that if it's placed too high, that it can create marginalization for other people. And this is part of what can make Mother's Day a very difficult thing for some people. Because by elevating one category, mothers or families or women who have children, we can inadvertently marginalize others. Those who struggle with fertility issues. Those who have lost babies. Those who are struggling to adopt and wrestling through that process And thinking about, will that ever happen for them? Those who choose not to have kids. Those who are single, either by choice or by life's circumstance. And so for all of these and other categories of people, sometimes when we lift up things like Mother's Day, it can be hard for them. And so hear me out for a minute if you find yourself in any of those categories today and feeling less than on a day like Mother's Day. People around you, most of them probably don't want to hurt you by celebrating mothers. They don't want to be glib, but sometimes it it can just be the inadvertent product of lifting something up. And so if that's you today, I want you to just hear a genuine I'm sorry from the church and from people around you. We want to walk with you, and we don't want to hurt you in any way, and I want you to know that you're loved and that you're valued here. This is not a place where you are not a whole person until you have a ring on your finger and a minivan in the parking lot. You are loved, and you are valued, even if we don't do always the best job of communicating that. So here, a genuine apology on behalf of the church if you find yourself in that place because singleness in particular that's what paul's trying to wrestle with here can be by either by choice or by circumstance a difficult thing and our culture sends us so many confusing messages about marriage and family but paul just starts the whole discussion on marriage and family by saying you know what singleness is The Bible elevates singleness, not as a burden to carry, but as a gift to be embraced. Granted, some single adults I talk to are trying to return that gift to sender as quickly as possible, find someone to marry, and that's okay if that's what God is walking and God has for you. But some elements of our culture tell you that if you are single, in some way you are a damaged person or you're not a whole person. But look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. He says to them, listen, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. In other words, it's good to be a single person, to live a celibate life. Some people have actually been given this as a gift from the Lord and it should be honored and not denigrated in any way. And, and when honoring it, that should be also one way of honoring that is by not always asking the single people in your life, so when are you going to find Mr. and Mrs. Wright? That's not a way of honoring people who are single. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, listen, I wish everyone were single just like I am. And he says this, and he's clear in 1 Corinthians 7, because... In a stage of life where he's single, he can actually be, there's advantages for him for ministry, just like there's advantages for being married. And so in Paul's case, he has this freedom to live out his life in a way that is effective as a missionary in a single adult context more so than it were, than if he were married. Because he has to think about the concerns of others if you look at 1 Corinthians seven thirty two, So we don't have a time to go into all of the reasons as to why and when someone who's single should get married, uh, what that happens if your marriage dissolves or if you're married to a person who doesn't share your faith. That's all in chapter 7. And so read what Paul says about that this week if those are topics that are of interest to you. What I want us to see here is simply that the Bible affirms and not only elevates singleness and calls those who are single to live in places of purity, but our culture tells us very much the opposite. Our culture tells us, listen, you can't possibly be a whole, healthy human being if you don't have sex. So this is where Paul actually turns his attention uh, in the text next to the topic of sexuality. So again, not a very typical Mother's Day topic. Paul says, firstly, it's good to be married, but it's also good to be single. Secondly, he says, it's good thing to have sex, but within a certain context. Well, what context is that? Well, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, God sets out, His ideal template for human flourishing. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, immediately after God has created men and women, he says to them, Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and will cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the Bible's very polite or obtuse way of talking about people having sex, just in case it's not clear. So I don't know about you, but growing up, I missed the message of what the Bible teaches about sex. Because the Bible teaches that sex is actually a good gift that God has given to us. And I missed that message growing up. Because I think part of it was that I grew up in a context where defined the Christian life mostly negatively. By things that we didn't or shouldn't do. Or we don't do this. We don't do that. And so this, I think, tainted the attitude or the teaching, or maybe just the way I heard it in the Protestant tradition that I grew up in about human sexuality. And I know for me, and maybe for you, uh, the thing that I heard about sex, I could sum up the message about sex in just one kind of quick way. And it was this. Sex. Bad, 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 good. And while this is true, I don't think that the church has done a great job of explaining why sexual intimacy rightfully takes place within a covenant marriage relationship intended to unite one man and one woman for life. And so Paul is trying to speak to that in this text and trying to help answer questions for them. And it's helpful here for us to understand a little bit about the history and life of the people that he's writing to in the city of Corinth. You see, if you asked anybody in the ancient world to describe Corinth, like in one word, what's the big thing about Corinth? Like what's Corinth all about? The word they would have used is sex. Corinth was a place for indulging sexual passions that whatever sexual passion came into your head or your heart fully with no restrictions or restraint whatsoever. It was a place of sexual perversion that would make Fifty Shades of Grey look like a children's book. One of the main things that Corinth was known for was sexual prostitution, both same and opposite gender. Men in Corinth understood that their lives could revolve around sex in ways that it would shock us in our contemporary understanding. And we see this because Paul has to write to them and say to them, listen, there's such sexual perversion going on in here, in the beginning of chapter 5, something that even pagans don't even think about or do. And so he has to write correctives to them about this. And men in Corinth understood something about sex, that they were free at any time to indulge any urge that they had inside, either within their marriage or outside of their marriage, with men or with women in any way at any time. And that was perfectly socially acceptable within their cultural context. And it was completely dehumanizing, especially for women. Because women then were treated as property and just disposable at any time. And so when Paul writes at the beginning of chapter 7 and says, listen, husbands, I want you to have one wife. And when he says to them, listen, husbands, fulfill your wife's sexual needs. Husbands, give authority over your body to your wife. This is radical stuff for them to hear. Because the Christians in Corinth, they're trying to figure out how to live out God's design for marriage in a culture that has no regard for it whatsoever. And so they're coming to faith and they're hearing that marriage should be a relationship characterized by fidelity, by mutual love, and by trust. And this is completely earth-shattering news to them. And it's an incredibly difficult lifestyle change for them to make as they become a follower of jesus and paul is pushing hard into this category and it's why he spends so much time talking about sexual ethics and sexual immorality in the books of first and second corinthians because he wants them to understand that listen when you come into a place where your life is submitted to jesus and you come to a place of repentance and faith, that touches every aspect of your life. It doesn't just create a new box in your life called religion, where you pencil in spirituality for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. It doesn't just create a set of of mental categories that you affirm and kind of things that you say, yep, I believe that. I'm going to give mental assent, and then I move on with my life in the way that it was. When you come to a place of saying yes to Jesus, of opening your life to him, your relationship with God begins to shape all of the other parts of your life. It begins to shape how you think about your other relationships. It begins to shape how you think about and relate to who you are. And it begins to define that because first and foremost, your identity has actually shifted if you have said yes to God. First and foremost, now your identity as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple first and foremost, someone who is loved by your heavenly father and who invites you to walk in obedience to him. And that shapes your attitudes and actions and decisions about all of the rest of the things in your life. It begins to define your identity. And so if you're here today and you think to yourself, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but by that you mean that you have, I've just said yes to a mental set of categories and thought, yeah, I think I believe that kind of stuff, but that hasn't changed the way you live your life in some meaningful and long-lasting way. And you haven't said yes to Jesus and submitted every part of your life and your heart to him because it shapes your identity and it forms and begins to touch every part of your character and the ethics and this is a process that continues in our lives because just because you said yes to Jesus at one point doesn't mean that then suddenly that's a something that that you have immediately become all of the things That have troubled you, your hurts, your habits, your hang ups in the past are gone. You need to continue to work through that. But God has begun to given you the grace to work that through. And if you've never actually made that decision and you've never actually said yes to Jesus and reoriented your heart to have God as the primary source of identity in your life, then don't leave here today without doing that. We would love to pray with and for you and explore that together. Because in our culture, We have a lot of ways about thinking and talking about our identity and expressing that, don't we? We have our little uh, descriptors of how we relate to other things. Things that we put in our Facebook profile or on our Twitter handles. And we like to broadcast this in various ways. One of the most interesting ways, I think, is uh, the way in which we broadcast that on our vehicles. People put like little stick figures right on their cars on the back of their cars, and they look about and think about things um, so have you seen some of those these little stick figures on your cars? Some of them, I think are actually uh, quite hilarious, like this one uh, that I found that 's actually broadcasting the fact that they have uh, uh, that they 're a little bit unhappy with their marriage that that position is available. Uh, but when we put things on our cars, because we're actually trying to communicate something about our identity and our connection with the world. So Pastor Keith has a purple W on the back of his Toyota, which means he is a means he's a Huskies fan. That's right. And then if you saw someone like, again, for example, Pastor Keith with a big twelve on a big flag, you know that the person would be a. A Seahawks fan, that's right, because they're communicating something about their relationship with the world and their identity. And so our little slogans or our little bumper stickers uh, actually have a fascinating way of revealing our connections with the world and our beliefs. And this was no different actually in the ancient world. Because in Corinth, they had little expressions that if they would have driven cars, again, pre-cars, pre-Google, uh, but they would have put these little expressions on, on, as bumper stickers on them. And so Paul actually speaks to a couple of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and verses 13. And you can see them because they're actually isolated uh, in quotations in uh, your Bible. So 1 Corinthians six twelve. Uh, Paul's reflecting back to them and he says, oh, you say, you've got a little uh, bumper sticker that says, I'm allowed to do anything. But Paul says, listen, not everything is good for you. Even though I'm allowed to do everything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, here's another one of their slogans, well, food was made for the stomach and the stomach was for food, live to eat, eat to live. This is true, Paul says, although someday God's going to do away both of them, but... You cannot say that your bodies were made for sexual immorality because they were made for the Lord and God cares about our bodies. So Paul has to speak to them and talk to these little slogans that they have, that their identity. The one slogan that they have is, oh, I'm allowed to do anything. And that makes sense, right? In their permissive culture, they think to themselves, yeah, We would say probably in more modern language, if it feels good, do it. But Paul challenges that directly and says, listen, if it feels good, do it. Like play that philosophy of life out. There's incredible impact that that can have, not only on those around you that can hurt people, but also on your own soul because you say, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want. If you indulge everything that comes into your mind, every whim, you are actually a slave to your own passions and desires. You have been mastered by your impulses in the name of, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want. And that's why Paul teaches so directly on sexual ethics. Because sexuality is such a powerful thing. That's why the Bible says so much about it. We're reminded that you don't use it in chapter 7. Paul says you do not use sex within the context of your marriage as something for reward or punishment or power or control sex is not about meeting your own psychological and emotional or physiological needs this is a big challenge to us in a culture that just says whatever i feel like doing i should do but sex and eating as paul speaks into this then he can see them saying well well if it's just you know those two things are the same Paul says eh, no there's a difference here just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it it might be technically legal but it might be spiritually inappropriate for you and Paul wants to remind them of this and he says you know what gang the stakes are really really high and so look with me at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul says, listen, don't you realize? Those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or who practice homosexuality or who are thieves or greedy or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves, Paul says. These things uh, might be technically legal in your culture, but they are not spiritually appropriate. There's things that Paul wants to remind us, though, of where he finishes the text. He says in verse 11, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is where Paul wants to take the conversation, not to places of guilt and shame, but to remind us of the fact that we are called to live out our true identity as those who may have lived in that way, but who have been cleansed, who have been made holy. No matter what your sexual past, the mistakes that you have made, the wrongs that have been done to you or inflicted on you by others, you have the possibility of living out a new story, of being made right with God by calling on the name of Jesus and by living in such a way that you honor God with your body. But we don't just sort of wake up one morning and decide, and get there all on our own. We need to invite the work of the Holy Spirit and the gift of a trusted community to walk with us in that journey because it's a hard journey. And as we walk that journey, there's pitfalls of our past that we fall into. And so a lot of times, guilt begins to grip us in ways that we think, yeah, but I could never get there. I love... What Lauren Winner says when she talks about this in her book, Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. And she says this, when we want to talk about sin, we are all guilty, which is why I think Paul includes sins in that list uh, that he just gave to us there that are both sexual in nature and Uh, dishonesty and drunkenness and greed and things He's, he's making a point to say listen we're all guilty we all sin but the fact that we fail to obey christ does not disqualify us it actually qualifies us because it puts us in the place of needing to be reliant on god's grace it puts us into a community where we're all repentant sinners gathering together to fight the good fight of faith and to walk that out and help and live in purity and in holiness with each other. That's our job as people in community. We talked about that last week, how whenever we move into places where we are outside of what it is that God's calling us to, that as a community, it's our job to look each other in the eye and say, you know what, friend, I think you're offside there. And to call each other back into places of holiness and repentance. And that's hard work to do. And it's got to be done with grace and love and with good relationships And as we continue to walk that out. And so we're going to move to a time of responding to God today in worship and response in prayer. And sometimes we open it up for prayer where you can go up and pray with people. Uh, but in, in the area when we begin to talk about things like sexuality and sexual ethics and things, I didn't want to create a context where if you feel like you're going up for prayer, that somehow that puts some kind of big mark on you in any way. And so I think today our response will just be different. The team's going to lead us in two uh, worship songs that speak to areas of repentance, speak to God calling us back to holiness and life together. And so certainly you may want to express a response to God in that way. You may want to do that simply by kneeling and submitting your heart to God in different ways. Today you may want to do that by lifting your hands Uh, When Paul talks about submitting our bodies to God, that's one way in which we can express worship and submission to God. And so as the team leads us in two songs that speak to this, I want to pray out a prayer for you and for me that comes from our friends in the Episcopal Church. This is a prayer called the Prayer of Collect for Purity. The prayer reads this way. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, would you cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's respond to God as we worship together